Are you aware of the fact that there are some biblical promises related to Christmas that most Christians either don't know about or have forgotten? Stay tuned for a discussion of the forgotten promises of Christmas. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. Last week, we ended our program with a reference to what I call the forgotten promises of Christmas. In this program, we want to take an in-depth look at those promises. But first, let me introduce my colleagues who are going to participate in the discussion with me. This is my friend Dennis Pollack. Many of you are familiar with him because he served as my associate here at Lamb and Lion Ministries for 11 years before he decided to step out in faith and form his own ministry called Spirit of Grace. It focuses primarily on preaching the gospel in Africa, although Dennis does uh, go to other parts of the world like India and the Philippines. Dennis is also very much involved with the training of pastors in Africa. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy, Dennis. Well, thanks, Dave. It's always a blessing to be with you. Well, it's a blessing to have you. We always look forward to your great sense of humor. (laughs) Also assisting me is my colleague Nathan Jones, who serves as our web minister. Welcome, Nathan. Great to be here. And how about telling folks about our website? Go to www.lamblion.com, lamblion.com. We've got all sorts of great articles on Bible prophecy. We've got all these Christ and Prophecy episodes listed there. We have a blog if you need a daily dose of Bible prophecy, a <laughs> Facebook group you can talk to people. And uh, we have an e-newsletter twice a month. Uh, you can sign up for that right there. Thank you. Dennis, tell people how they can get in touch with your ministry. Well, our website is spiritofgrace.org. And they can shoot an email directly to me by sending it to dennis at spiritofgrace.org. Or if they have a complaint or a criticism, they can send it to Dave Reagan at (laughs) (laughs) grumpycomments.org. Well, gentlemen, I want us to jump right into a discussion of what I call the forgotten promises of Christmas. And to get that discussion started, let's go to a key scripture that's found in Luke chapter 1, 26 through 33. And Nathan, why don't you read that for us? I'd be happy to. Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, and to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement, and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Thank you, Nathan. Now, folks, I I want you to uh, note that this passage contains seven promises. Number one, Mary will conceive and give birth to a son. Number two, he will be named Jesus. Number three, he will be great. Number four, he will be called the Son of the Most High. Number five, he will be given the throne of David. Number six, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And number seven, there will be no end to his kingdom. Now, gentlemen, of these seven prophecies, which do you think have been fulfilled? 
Well, the first four have definitely been fulfilled already. The idea that Mary would conceive and bear a son, we know that is historically true. Mary, a young uh, Jewish virgin, conceived, bore a son. The next one said his name would be called Jesus. Jesus is the Hebrew name that means the Lord is salvation. And Jesus was named Jesus, actually Yeshua. And uh, that was fulfilled as well. The Bible goes on to say that he would be great. Well, there is no person that could ever be considered any greater. Even by secular standards. He we is measure a, time by him. We measure time by him. He has affected history more than any other person ever has. And is the most famous person that's ever lived on the planet. He also happened to be God manifest in the flesh, which makes him great as well. And then finally, the fourth one is that he would be called the Son of God. He, of course, is the Son of God. He made that plain. The scriptures make that plain. So those four have been fulfilled exactly as they were predicted. How about Nathan? Do you think so? Definitely. I agree with you, Dennis. The first four have definitely been fulfilled because the last three have not. Well, that's the, the interesting thing about this, and that is that uh, I think everyone out there who calls themselves a Christian, regardless of denomination, whether Protestant, Catholic, or whatever, would agree that those four have been fulfilled and fulfilled literally for, for their plain sense meaning. But that leaves us with three that appear to be unfulfilled. And folks, they are, uh, will He uh, be given the uh, throne of David? And second, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And third, there will be no end to his kingdom. What about it, fellas? Have those been fulfilled? No, Dave, they really haven't. One thing that's interesting in those promises, particularly those, those first two that you mentioned, he'll be given the throne of David, he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, is that they have a very Jewish sound to them. The, the, the throne of David was, was actually a literal place of government over the nation of Israel. In the city of Jerusalem. In the city of Jerusalem. And then the house of Jacob clearly was the Jews. It was the Jewish people. This was the house of Jacob. By no stretch of the imagination can you declare that he has reigned over the house of Jacob or that he is reigning over the house of Jacob. And of course the scripture goes on to say this will go on forever. So those have not happened and you're left with the conundrum of saying either they're not going to happen, which is unacceptable, or some would say, well, it's all symbolic and it doesn't re really mean anything or it means the church. Or you could say it's going to happen, which of course is the position that you and I would take. Well, folks, uh, I would agree that these three prophecies are unfulfilled. But I want to hasten to point out that the leaders of the Catholic Church and the leaders of the vast majority of Protestant denominations in the world today would strongly disagree. The fact of the matter is that the predominant Catholic and Protestant viewpoint is that these three prophecies, like the first four, have already been fulfilled. Uh, the argument uh, goes like this. The first four prophecies were literally fulfilled in the life of Jesus. The last three have been figuratively or symbolically or spiritually fulfilled in the life of the church. What about it, fellas? Have these been spiritually? Uh, Nathan, have they? Uh, you know, if you read other passages that talk about when Jesus rules and reigns here on earth, it doesn't happen. Uh, if I go to Isaiah 24, 23, the moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem before its elders. Or Isaiah 40, 4 through 5. Every valley should be raised up, every mountain hill made low, the rough ground should be made level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all of mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Have any of these things happened in history? They haven't. So clearly it's a future event. Is, is Jesus sitting on the throne of David today? 
No, and it can't be argued that God's throne is the throne of David. It's God's throne, not David's throne. Yeah, the throne. Bible says he sits on the right hand of his father on his throne, on the father's throne. Right. But this says that he's going to be given the throne of David, which has always, as you said, been in Jerusalem. And he's not in Jerusalem today, sitting on the throne of David. And then uh, the one about he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Well, I grew up in a church, that, and this is what's normally taught in Christendom. That means he's going to reign over the church. Yeah. Yeah. That he's reigning over the church. Well, he, yes, he's reigning over the church right now, but the church is not the house of Jacob. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are a number of people, sad to say, that have a couple of stamps that they stamp prophecies with. One of them says, does not apply to the Jews, applies to the church. And so you show them some prophecy that predicts glorious things for the Jews, Jesus reigning over the Jews, the Jews being raised up, and they stamp it. Doesn't apply, applies to the church. The other stamp is symbolic. They'll just stamp everything symbolic, no matter what you give them. And so they write off all these tremendous prophecies. And, and it's, so, uh, it's not really logical to say that the first four are literally fulfilled and the last three are symbolically fulfilled. And particularly when you consider that the first coming prophecies were all fulfilled in their literal plain sense meaning. Exactly. Not symbolically, not spiritually. Uh, spiritualization people love to get involved in because uh, you can play God when you spiritualize because you can make the Scripture say anything you want it to say. Yeah. And it's a sad testament to our Christian faith. If our hope is the Lord's return and we just kind of may say, well, it's not really happening. It was fulfilled in the past. We lose that hope that we have in Jesus. And we don't have as depth of Christian life like we should. And another aspect of that, of course, that you hinted at, Dennis, is replacement theology, which says uh, God has washed His hands of the Jews, has no purpose left for the Jews, and therefore the church has inherited all of the promises of Israel. In the original King James Version, in 1611, in the Old Testament, in in many of the uh, chapters in Isaiah, they put in chapter headings that said, God makes promises to the church. (laughs) Does have anything to do with the church? It were promises to Israel, to the Jewish people. Yeah. And, and so we have this idea that the church has replaced Israel, therefore the church has inherited all these promises, and therefore the church has fulfilled all these promises. Yeah. It, it basically dilutes prophecy to the point where it almost means nothing. And prophecy is such a rich aspect of Scripture. There are so many specific details about what God will do. And if you read them and you say to yourself, God really means what He says here. He's really going to do this. You are enriched so immensely in understanding Mm -hmm. the future. It's exciting. It's inspiring. It builds your faith. But if you just say it's all symbolic, it doesn't mean anything, then all that prophecy, all these scriptures, the scriptures of Isaiah talking about the the wolf and the lamb feeding together and the lion eating straw like the ox and all these other tremendous prophecies are diluted to the point where they mean nothing. And the details then are irrelevant. Uh, Imagine if if, uh, I were to write a book on how to lose weight and the only words in the book were, don't eat so much. It, it would be just something that would be meaningless because it has no detail, no depth, no, no substance. It's true, but it, it's meaningless. And that's what people do with prophecy. They basically just condense it down to the point where all it means is, in the end, good will win over evil and don't try to figure anything out but that. And they have diluted it down to the point where it's not exciting, it's not inspiring, and it's 
essentially It's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> yeah. I remember Pamela one time you, you told me uh, that uh, so many pastors tell you it's just all going to pan out in the end, you know. And, and you said those guys would be really good members of the Know Nothing Party back before the Civil War. <laughs> exactly. They don't know nothing and they're proud of not knowing yeah, nothing. That's the problem. It's one thing not to know anything. It's another thing to be proud of it and to go around making jokes about well, it. When people always it. Uh, make the comment to me that uh, the promises that God made to the Jewish people have now been transferred to the church, yeah. I always say, well, does that mean that the promises He's made the church might be transferred to someone else? Yeah, it, it is such a sad thing. It reminds me of something that happened with my son when he was a, my youngest son when he was small. He got into some trouble, and he we were all gathered around to kind of I went there to kind of deal with the problem, and he thought he could get out of it by two words. He looked it up at me, and he said. Uh, I was just kidding and made a little funny laugh. And he thought that would solve everything. A lot of people think that's what God meant when he was talking to the Jews about all these tremendous promises, Amos 9, all these wonderful things that he says will happen. And they're saying, well, God just said he was actually not really telling the truth. He was just kidding. Uh, it, it basically makes Scripture so weak. And, you know, when we put our faith in Christ, we value the integrity of the Word of God. Yes. We believe it means what it says. And if prophecy doesn't mean what it says, who's to say anything means what it says? Folks, those who take the position that the last three promises made to Mary by the angel Gabriel have been fulfilled spiritually in the church are called amillennialists. These are the people who argue that there is not going to be any future reign of Jesus on this earth because we are living in the millennium now. That's right. They argue that we are living in the millennium now. In just a moment, we're going to discuss this viewpoint. But before we do so, let's pause for a song by Sandy Patty called Bethlehem Morning. Listen carefully to this song because it beautifully interweaves the first coming of Jesus with the promise that He will come again.
Okay, fellas, I want to get right to the point here, and the point is the amillennial viewpoint. That's the one that spiritualizes all of these promises, and the amillennial viewpoint uh, is the one that is predominant among uh, in the field of prophecy today, both among Catholics and among Protestants. Most people think the premillennial view, the pre-tribulational view, is is the predominant viewpoint. It's mm-hmm. the one probably has had the most publicity, but it is right. not the predominant viewpoint. The predominant view held by most churches is the amillennial view, and one of the aspects of that viewpoint is that we are living in the millennium right now. How about it? Are we? <laughs> well, in, the, the, in Revelation 20 it describes the millennium and gives us the number of years. And that is a thousand years, which is why it's called the millennium. Six times it uses that number. And the amillennialist says that's not really what it's meaning. What it's meaning is some indefinite period of time and we're already in it. There's just tremendous problems with that. But to me, the biggest problem is this. If we are truly living in the millennium, then according to Revelation, Satan has been bound, but not only bound, but cast into a bottomless pit. The pit has been sealed up, and the Bible plainly says he will deceive the nations no more. Deception is gone. There's no more deception. Now, Dave, I just got back from India where they were having a big celebration of the elephant god. I mean, it was everywhere. People were celebrating Mr. Elephant God. I turned on the Indian television and there were parades with the elephant god. Uh, And millions, and uh, there's nearly a billion people, about 80% of those are Hindu, and they love the elephant god. They are deceived. There are Muslims who are killing themselves, blowing themselves up. Young men who are absolutely confident that the minute they die, they will enter into a paradise and 70 virgins will be waiting for them and they'll just have a marvelous time for eternity. Well, what about our own nation where for the past few years the President of the United States has issued a proclamation in June proclaiming June to be the celebration of the gay and lesbian lifestyle? Yeah. So deception abounds. (laughs) And to say that the nations are no more deceived... It's beyond stretching the truth. It is just absolutely shattering the truth. There's no way you can say that with a straight face as far as I'm concerned. And the well, way the Bible describes the millennium. Yes. I mean, it's totally different than look reality today. Look at Isaiah in today. Yeah. Oh, I, look at Ezekiel 47, for instance. It says that a river runs out of the temple that the Lord will have here. Well, where is that temple? And the temple dimensions are massive, the size of a city. And it says the Dead Sea will flourish again and people will be fishing. I've been in the Dead Sea. There's nothing <laughs> alive in the Dead Sea. I mean, if the Dead Sea is not alive today, then we are not living in the millennium. And like you said, Satan, the Bible, you can go to the Bible, you can go to 1 John 5, uh, 19, it says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That was written after the cross. That was written, exactly. So Satan is still in charge. Well, what about the the wolf lying down with the lamb and the lion eating straw with the ox? Does that mean anything at all? Is that happening now? No, it's definitely not happening. The only way you can get around that is that it didn't mean what it actually said. But you know, there's a reason we use words. Why is it that we don't just grunt at one another? There may be some housewives that say, well, that's what my husband does to me. But (laughs) most of us use words. And the reason is words have meanings behind them. And life would be utterly chaotic if words didn't, weren't associated with definite meanings. And the, 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 the idea of a thousand years, the idea of this millennium is so clearly lined up in the Bible that you cannot get around it. You know, I'm reminded of uh, Daniel when he prayed in Daniel 9, one right. of the greatest prayers of Scripture. Right. Uh, he prays for Israel. He's praying for the release of the captives of Israel who are captives in Babylon. Now, what was it that motivated Daniel to pray that incredible prayer? Daniel had been reading the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had said very plainly that the desolations of Israel in their captivity would be over 
after 70 years. Daniel did not say to himself, oh, well, 7, that, yes, that. yeah, that's 7,000 or 7 million. Who knows? <laughs> I think I'll take a vote and we'll see what 70 years really means. No, David immediately put on the sackcloth and ashes yeah. and began to fast and seek the Lord, absolutely confident that what God had said through Jeremiah was literally the case. Right, that's right, that's right. Uh, it, it just, I had a fellow one time tell me, he said, I said, you know, it says six times in Revelation 20. He says, yeah, but that, that's only one chapter in the Bible. It only says it one chapter in the Bible. Well, I, I, to me, if God says it in one verse in the Bible, that's yeah. sufficient. Yeah. How many times does He have to repeat it? It, it's just, and then I had another fellow say, "Well, you know, over in the Psalms it says God's the, the, the uh, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Are there only a thousand hills? No. So therefore, that's symbolic. Therefore, the word thousand is symbolic." Well, isn't well, that the basic problem with amillennialism? Bad hermeneutics. Well, bad study of the Bible. Yeah. It's also uh, got to keep in mind that that the the meaning of words is determined by context. In exactly. one context, a word may be symbolic, but in another context, it'd be very literal. But it, it, you've got to consider the context. You know, amillennials uh, often say that there's not one verse in the Bible, not one, that even implies Jesus will ever put His feet on the earth again. I heard that in sermon after sermon after sermon. <laughs> Is that true? Is there any verse that implies Jesus will put His feet on this earth again? Let well, me read the verse for you. Zechariah 14.4, On that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Or Acts 3.21, He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised long ago from the Holy Prophets. He hasn't come and restored anything yet because He isn't physically here yet. Yeah. Yeah. And Revelation says that He will strike the nations, He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will rule the nations, not just rule over the Christians in heaven, but mm -hmm. He will rule the nations. I was talking about that Zechariah 14 passage with anomalennials one time, and I mentioned that. And he said, well, uh, all Old Testament prophecy has been fulfilled. There's not one prophecy in Old Testament had been fulfilled. There's over 500 in the Old Testament about the second coming <laughs> yeah. of Jesus. And I said, well, what about this? When was it fulfilled? He said, I do not know. I have no idea. But it was fulfilled somewhere, sometime, some way. It was like talking to a brick wall. Yeah. And yet the Bible clearly says He is going to return to this earth. Mm -hmm. How frustrating that must be for God. I mean, He's given us all this insight into His future and His victory and our victory through Him, and so many people just throw it out. There's also the position you hear so often that first coming prophecies meant what they said and should be interpreted for their plain sense meaning, but second coming prophecies are all apocalyptic, and therefore that means you don't interpret them for their literal meaning. No. But what right have they to say that? I mean, yes. obviously, we know that the first coming one's prophecies were fulfilled literally. Yeah. Who made them the, the, the decider to say that the second coming will not be fulfilled literally? Clearly, they are. Imagine reading a history book on World War II where you knew only one thing that nothing you read would be literally true. Every date would be <laughs> coded so that it didn't really mean what it said. Every battle that's described wouldn't be true at all. So you're spending the whole time trying to say, what did he really mean? Welcome to postmodernism, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a worthless book. I would trash it immediately and go get something that was literally true. And prophecy is essentially history written beforehand. Yes. Mm -hmm. But it's so much fun to say, well, it doesn't really mean what it says. Let me tell you, let me tell yeah. you what it really 
really means. Well, it reminds me of the Jesus Seminar when these guys went around oh. the country saying, well, we're going to vote and tell you whether this was actually said by Jesus yes. or not. They ended up saying about 90% of the words of Jesus were not said. But I thought, what arrogance. Yeah. Who are you to tell us that the Bible is not true? Well, I think the best approach to the whole Bible from beginning to end, not just prophecy, but all of it, right. is what I call that golden rule of interpretation. If the plain yeah. sense makes sense, don't look for other, any other sense or you will end up with nonsense. Just take it for its plain sense yeah. meaning. Sometimes it may be symbolic, but symbolism symbols also have a plain sense meaning. Yeah. I mean, Jesus never called the, uh, the uh, tumbleweed of Texas because that's a terrible image. He's called, you know, the, the Rose of Sharon because it's a beautiful image. That may be symbolic, but it has a literal meaning behind it. Yeah. And, and when there is symbolism, and, and granted there, there is symbolism in Scripture, but it's obvious symbolism. It's not something you have to scratch your head and wonder. There are, there are you know, there's, the Bible speaks about a, a, a harlot that's going to ride a beast in the last days, yeah. but we're not literally looking or <laughs> expecting that a harlot will be on top of a beast. That was obviously symbolic. But uh, the Scripture, if it doesn't obviously declare or make it appear to be a symbol, there's no reason for us to say it, it should be one. Well, folks, that's our time for this program. The last three promises that the angel Gabriel made to Mary are glorious ones for all believers. Don't let anyone rob you of their glory by spiritualizing them with nonsensical arguments that they really don't mean what they say or that they have already been fulfilled in some strange, mysterious, and spiritual way. Again, the first four promises were literally fulfilled. I think we can confidently expect the last three to also be literally fulfilled in history. And let me ask you a question. Are you an heir of these promises? Do you have the promise of living with God in His eternal kingdom? The Bible says there's only one way you can become an heir of these promises, and that is to become a child of the Father who made the promises. And the way you do that is by being born into the family of God by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, then all you need to do is pray a simple prayer to God in which you say something like this, Dear Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I'm a sinner and that I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me as I accept your Son Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. And when you pray that prayer, be sure to seek out a Bible-believing church where you can witness your faith through a public confession of Jesus and through water baptism. Well, folks, that's our program for this week. I hope you'll be back with us again next week. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Get your copy of the book, Jesus, the Lamb, and the Lion, for a donation of $20 or more. This book presents a sweeping survey of Bible prophecy that relates to the first and second comings of Jesus. You will also gain new insights into the miracles of Jesus, and it will show the amazing accuracy of the Bible by the probability factors presented. You will benefit from the extensive evidence given for the virgin birth, the deity of Jesus, the resurrection, and more. Like all of Dr. Reagan's books, you will find this to be down-to-earth and easy to understand. We could provide you with a copy of this book for a donation of $20 or more. That includes the cost of shipping. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 